Here we go. G'day, g'day, everyone. Welcome back for another episode. Here we are. Dane, how are we? Yeah, not too bad yourself, Josh. Yeah, yeah, I'm all right, mate. It's been a, a busy last couple of days. There's a lot of news that we have to discuss as well um, as oh. the, the topic for today. Uh, the topic for today is going to be the enclosure debate, which we all know and love in the reptile world. Uh, but we will come to that in a couple of minutes. Um, first off, what I want to talk about is, uh, I'm not sure if you saw this, Dane, or not, but there's been some very exciting news to come out of the Australian Reptile Park today. Oh. Um, they have successfully paired their Komodo dragons. So they oh. got a, uh, they've had uh, at least one copulation um, so far, okay. uh, which is, the first time it has happened in Australia, especially if they can get babies on the ground, that is going to be fantastic. Wow. Okay. Oh, no, I didn't hear that. Yeah. That's so that's, that's big news for Komodo dragons in the region because um, some captive bred, oh, the, most of them are captive bred. I think all of them are captive bred, but captive bred Australian born bred is going to be big, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, whether it be acclimatization to Australian weather mm. patterns and that sort of stuff as well. There's lots of potential for where that yeah, can go. If those are to, um, to be born, uh, are we allowed to keep them here or are they sent off to Indonesia? Um, I'm pretty sure. So if, if it was like the pandas, I know the pandas are basically China owns them and that is all. Yeah, uh, but I think the Komodos, they've got a bit more leeway. So I would okay. imagine that they would probably be able to keep them. Um, uh-huh. But I would imagine, depending on obviously how many there are, mm, there aren't a whole lot of zoos that would be able to take on more Komodos. Yeah. Because um, most of the places that have them either have pairs or uh, have only got space for a single. Um, uh, okay. But it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I'm very excited. Hopefully uh, they are able to crack them. Um, I know the, the guys down there are very, very excited with today's uh, and the last you know couple of days they've been preparing for years. Um, their setup is perfect for breeding Komodos purely because they've got essentially like a pool glass uh, gate almost okay. separating the, the two Komodos. Yep. So basically year round, they can see and smell each other, which means they already know who they are, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because Komodos are one of those species that can be incredibly, incredibly insane when it comes to breeding season um, oh. and doing everything that you don't want them to do. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think they, they uh, will hopefully crack those and that'll be a phenomenal thing to happen in the region for, for zoos and for Komodo dragons alike. Oh, okay. Well, that's fucking, that's good news. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Quite you know, interesting to see what will come of that. We, we always love a good news story. Hey. Yeah. Got to keep it interesting. Yeah, that's it. Now the other news for today, and I'm afraid uh, listeners, you will have no idea what I'm talking about here because uh, you won't find photos of what I've about to talk about anywhere. Um, I've made sure of that one. Uh, but I made a grave mistake this week, Dane, a very grave mistake. Oh, oh dear. I, uh, decided that my, my hair was annoying me. 
<laughs> and um, I decided to go, hey, uh, hey, mum, you've always said you want to, you know, she's always jokingly offered to cut my hair. And I figured we're not getting out of lockdown for a while. So I went, you know what? How bad could it be? Oh no, Josh. Now, now Dane, you're going to be able to appreciate this, right? Oh. Let me just, let me just turn to the side really quick. Oh my it's, God. It's, it's quite literally like <laughs> I'm getting forest gum vibes. Uh, no, show your head again. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> What's that? You've still got like a rogue piece of long hair there. <laughs> So basically, if anybody who lives uh, like in my area sees me, uh, I will be wearing beanies, caps, and hoodies for the next couple of weeks. Um, oh my yeah, god! Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, it is what it is, you know. If you can't see this right now, it's a fade gone wrong, basically. It, yeah, at this it really point, is. it looks like the clippers clippers died halfway. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. It's almost like a, a cross between like a convict kind of a deal and a European soccer player. I really don't know where the you know where the line is there, but <laughs> yeah. So that that was that's been my week. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Josh! <laughs> Just buzz it off, man. <laughs> Just oh, I'm, I, I was tempted, but you know what? It, it's growing on me. Like, and plus, my hair grows really quickly anyway. So, I mean, it, right. she'll be right. As long as we don't go back to school in the next like week, otherwise, I'm stuffed. But it is what it is. Oh, you, you only, you only live um, once, as they say. I don't think we're, I don't think we're going back anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. With uh, a good old, good old 80 cases today, I really don't think we're getting anywhere in a hurry, unfortunately. No. But it is what it is, as we say. Um, so that's, I suppose that's story time for this, this episode. Um, yeah, my hair. Fantastic. <laughs> we, we love that. Or the lack thereof, I suppose you could say. You know, it's... Jeez. Anyway, um, so today, as I said, we're going to talk about the wonderful world that is enclosures in reptiles specifically. Um, now, obviously, similar to the morphs localities debate, there may be a few sweeping generalizations here. We don't mean to put anyone's nose out of shape, but this is just uh, basically we're talking off the top of our head here. So we're kind of shooting, sh- shooting the shit, if you get what I'm saying. So if anybody uh, doesn't like what we're saying, fair enough. It is what it is. Um, but also in that same tone, feel free to comment your own beliefs or uh, anything that you want to discuss with us uh, when we share this around on the, the different Facebook pages and that sort of stuff. Um, so I figured we'd get started by talking briefly about what the the prominent enclosure types are now obviously you can break this down as much as you would like but we're going to go fairly general here you've got the the wooden or glass tank options that the, the tanks if you will you've got uh mm-hmm. pits and outdoor aviaries and you've got the the rack systems those are probably the main ones is there anything else that you can think of dane i think those are the main ones uh yeah i'm pretty sure those are the main ones uh and then I suppose within that you've got the the setup of each enclosure as well. So whether you go naturalistic, enrichment based type of deal, or more simplistic, depending on the environment, the animal, the circumstances, obviously that's going to change. Um, I am. I, are we going to talk about each other 
first and our experience date, and then we'll go in. We'll see where it goes from there. I guess this is going to be another one of those, one, another one of those type of episodes, you know. Um, so I suppose you know what, Dane. Let's hand it over to you. How how do you keep your animals? How have you kept your animals? What have you found with the different setups that you've tried? Um, so I've mainly kept my stuff in malamine enclosures. Now dabbling in a bit of glass enclosures. I have in the past. Uh, I did slightly for a time period there. I did keep stuff in a rack, but it didn't last too long, honestly. Um, I found racks obviously space-wise to be better, but there's nothing you can't, honestly, you can't beat looking at an animal, you know, once you walk in a room straight away (laughs) and you know, it's like, what is that thing doing? I don't know, but I get to watch it. (laughs) And obviously they, they seem to, on mine, they seem to thrive a lot better in enclosures than they Mm. do in a rack. Yeah. Uh, Just from my experience, they always better on food and um you know it's it's enriching for both the animal and you i guess in a way mm. to see what each other are doing yeah i feel like it stresses the animal a little bit less yeah uh yeah that's my main experience now you i, I will say you've also forgotten like the main way that you keep things dane um What's that, if you uh look out your backyard dane uh, there is there is also that that other way that you keep things. So, ah, yes, the pits. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's the one. Let's talk about those for a minute, shall we? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I've always had pits. I had pits before I had enclosures, which is just uh, mostly just full of blue tongues, shinglebacks, uh, and now four Cunninghams too. Uh, everything's always done well in pits. I've never had any issues. Uh, only only issues I've had is with respiratory infections regarding moisture. Mm. But that's just that's specific type of animal more so. Uh, yeah, I, I love pits. Uh, it's obviously the best route you can take in comparison to anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, pits over anything really. <laughs> if you have I think the, to. the 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 yeah the main thing there with the pit setups is, as you said, if you have the opportunity to. Um, specifically, I would look at your local area and give or take. The way that I roughly figure out if I can keep something outside or not is if it's half, around a half hour radius from where I live, then it should be good. Should be is the key word there. Anywhere further than that, and it's probably not a good idea, or there's other measures that you're going to have to take. Like I know some people have used indoor-outdoor pit and aviary-type setups for different things and that sort of stuff. Um, but for, for strictly outdoors, generally speaking, that's, that's my uh, general rule. Um, obviously, an exception to that is going to be uh, the water dragons. But in saying that, they're found in Vic in Melbourne as well, which climatically is basically the same to where we are in the West as well. So um, essentially you just want to look at where things are known to thrive. Um, And if you're roughly in that area, give or take, then you should be fine. Uh, Probably the main exception to that, that both myself and Dane have had experience with is shinglebacks. They seem to just not really like outside all that much, at least here in uh, southwest Victoria. Um, um, 
they, oh, it's been hit and miss, I suppose, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, they're the only ones I've ever had problems with regarding respiratory infections. Yet again, it's very reliant on different animals. Mm. I've also found they seem to do better outside than they do inside as well. They're just a really finicky animal. Yeah, you've re- it's but, all about the individuals as well. I would be interested to see how things like, you know how people have indoor pits and that sort of stuff. I would be yeah. interested to see how they would go in something like that because you get rid of the ventilation problem and uh, the moisture problem almost in the same same vein. So it'd be very interesting to see how something like that would go success-wise compared to just outdoors or just indoors in the normal or uh, stereotypical setting, I suppose. It'd probably still have to be quite well, uh, like a lot of airflow. I find I get a pretty bad salt buildup around their nose. Mm. Um, even I've kept them a little bit in an indoor pit um very briefly while i had uh not enough enclosure space (laughs) and i still found the salt build-up to be a problem it doesn't necessarily seem to harm them but it's just like they they also don't seem to cope too well either they just they seem to just lose condition i don't know it's just a strange animal really yeah it's it's i find it funny that people recommend them a lot as a starter i don't know if i would from from my experience at least i feel like you know there are lots of other things that are genuinely bulletproof that i mm. would i would recommend first whether that's dare i say bearded dragons although i've not kept those here myself i've just worked with enough that i can poke a stick at um or different blue tongue species other than the shingles i suppose um depending on the, what the person wants and their circumstances, obviously is going to depend on what's going to be the better option. But yeah, I would definitely hazard anyone from going down the shingleback route as the starter in saying that you can always, it's individuals will do things completely differently as well. So I suppose it just depends on the, the individual animal and the setup and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of variables at play, I suppose. It's also keeping in mind the locality of the, animal too it's like mm. sa shinglebacks seem to do so much worse than the victorian ones in regards yep. to a lot of the different things i don't know if that's just where we're based or um a climate issue or mm. if it's just the general uh locality i don't know i would i would hazard a guess and say and i've spoken to a few people about this there's almost like the the great dividing range is your, your split, if you will. On Uh, on our side of it, you're going to have more, obviously more coastal animals, stuff that's going to be more wet weather tolerant. Mm -hmm. On the other side of that, you're going to have stuff that's going to want minimal humidity or less humidity, uh, real, you know, drier conditions, that sort of stuff. Um, I would hazard a guess and say that anyone that's living on the other side of the great dividing range, is probably going to be better off success-wise than what we are down here. Yeah. Um, as a general rule of thumb, obviously, again, circumstances, everything. But they're, they're an interesting species, the old shinglebacks, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as far as uh, the way I keep things, I've got or have had a bit of everything, if I'm going to be totally honest. Um, at the moment behind me, I've got, Multiple different uh, enclosures, uh, different... I've got melamine tanks, glass tanks, 
naturalistic tanks. We've got more simplistic tanks. I've got plastic tanks, lots of tanks. Um, I've had racks previously for blue tongues, which we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, I've also got two outdoor enclosures, uh, one pit and one aviary. Uh, so the, the pit is for lowlands blotchies. The aviary has got Cunningham skinks and water dragons in it. Um, and uh, obviously we've done the collection talks before, so different animals are going to have different circumstances, but I have tried to experience a bit of everything. Um, I know when I first got into all of the, the, the animal keeping side of things um, in similar vein to that last topic that we had with the morphs localities thing. Um, I feel like it's a common, at least it, uh, this again, this might be a big generalization here, but I feel like a common thread is morphs, racks, space, you know, more, more space oriented, uh, more for the keeper than the kept, if you will. That's um, it which was the, the, the progression that I followed as well. Of course, there's, again, there's always going to be exceptions to that rule, but I know a lot of people that do go down that path and, you know, all, all power to you um, if that's the way you want to go. But uh, I would say that from my experience in the last two years in particular, geez, the stark change, I tell you. Um, so for those who don't know, last year I had probably the almost the worst possible breeding year that you could have uh, <laughs> my uh male northern bluey locked i don't know maybe five times total and we got one baby one lot of slugs and that was about it um so that compared to this year where he's been keen for probably two months um and i'm sure if i put him in a tub with one of the girls now he would still go, although I've stopped, you know, giving him his time off now. Um, I would hazard a guess and say that that is the, particularly due to the change in enclosures, um, purely because I found that with uh, the limited ventilation in some rack systems really did them no favours. Um, and they really weren't keen on that. But having that extra space, they're in the URS medium plastic tanks uh, nowadays, and they love them. Um, I've got a nice thick substrate layer so they can go digging and do their thing and get really nice and warm. I'm going to temp gun those enclosures tomorrow and figure out what their hot spots are sitting at. I've got them set to 35-ish, something like that. So yeah, I'll nice. be interested to see. Uh, interested to see where that sits. Um, I found the racks held about 32 at best, and I did have some rack malfunctions as well, which uh, yeah. really wasn't a fun time. Um, so after that point in time, I went, you know what? Racks only for babies. And in all honesty, that is purely a space thing. That is for the keeper, not the kept. But my philosophy on things nowadays and what my what I plan to do over the next couple of years is completely shift the way I've done things previously and be all about the kept instead of the keeper. What I mean mm -hmm. by that is reducing the collection animals wise, but increasing the space. Yes. Um, and I, I think personally, and although this may be controversial, I think that's the way forward. Um, I always loved the rhetoric that, 
private keepers can't have zoo enclosures because they're just too big. I really want to personally have my own contradiction to that theory. That's mm. my plan. Um, hopefully, it, it will go go to plan. That is, uh, but that's that's kind of what I'm what my my thought process is. I suppose is trying to go for the naturalistic, the big enclosures. You know, the trying to be essentially trying to be a more naturalistic and better keeper. Really, is what that that's is. It. Um, so like, for example, I'm looking over at a tank that I've just set up, uh, well, not finished set up, it's about halfway done, uh, which is going to be for some Eastern dwarf tree fogs eventually. Um, this is probably the most work I've put into a tank yet and I'm still nowhere near completion. Um, so that's something that I am, I'm actually really enjoying the process. I'm going to be honest. It's quite fun. Uh, although it seems like hard work while you're doing it just to get that reward at the end and go, yeah, that looks fantastic, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the way that I'm trying to go with things. Um, Dane, let's, let's talk about you for a minute. What are your, what are your visions on what your, what you've got nowadays? Um, honestly, it's pretty similar to you. Not going to lie. It's more just what I want to look at Yeah. and giving that, those animals the best life they well could have i guess i uh, i would not put my setups right now as final not at all i mm. <laughs> my diamond and python closures i want about two times the size they are now yeah you know um outside wise i'm pretty happy with it where it's at it mm. works well for what i've got and i don't really plan on getting anything more they seem happy they i've had those pits for or that main pit for 10 years plus counting. Yeah. And some of those animals have been in it since the very start and they've, been, they've done fine. Um, but yeah, it's just me working on my inside stuff, making it nice for viewing and the animals happy, really. Yeah, that's it. I think um, pits are probably an easier one to get right. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the main things that I've noticed with the online side of things is people tend to overcrowd pits very easily. That's it. Very easily. Um, for, for my example, I, I'm trying to remember what the size of my, my pit is. Um, at a guess, I'm going to say it's about one, 180 by... About three, two, isn't it? Yeah, one way it's two and a half or three and another way it's about 180 and then mm. about 90 tall. I have uh, five lowlands blotchies in there um, and that is more than enough uh, for, for, yeah. for me personally. Um, I don't want any more. I don't need any more. Um, although it is interesting, I have noticed that really only like two of them come out and about. But anyway, that's just individuals do individual things again, as we said at the start. But for me, I have had more than that in there previously and I didn't like it. Um, I wasn't a fan of, you know, you see, oftentimes you see on different groups a stack of 10 animals sitting next to each other. Mm. That's not that's not for me. Um, All fighting I'll, for that last bit of sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's not for me. I'll, uh, people are, again, people are free to do whatever they want to do, but 
you really got to, I think you've got to ask yourself at one point or another, whether that's, whether that's doing it right. Um, if you've got, you know, any more than 15, 20 animals in one pit, unless it's, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 20 meters square, you've really got to look at what you're doing. If, if I'm going to be honest here, um, that may be controversial, but Hey, that that's the way it is. That's, that's my belief. At least, um, I know for my, my water dragon Cunningham stink enclosure, um, I have whittled down my group of water dragons to three, uh, an adult male and two adult females. And I have two Cunningham skinks in there. Have I looked at putting other things in there? Yes. Am I going to? Probably not. Um, I think it would be wishful thinking to add anything else into that group because it works well. Um, you know, the Cunninghams have got their spot. The water dragons have got their spots. Um, but yeah, I've, again, I've had stuff, other stuff in there in the past. And it's that same sort of that same notion of having, you know, four or five animals in one spot. Is that really, you know, is that really what you want to aim for? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think um, one thing that I am going to look at over the next probably couple months, give or take, obviously depending on what happens in the world around us, um, is my uh, waterproof areas, the, the, the tubs and that sort of stuff. I want to, dare I say, naturefy them, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, just make them look a little pretty, basically, uh, a little bit prettier than they are already. Uh, you know, a black tub in a planted naturally space doesn't really, you know, stands out like dog's balls, really. Um, so I think that's on my, my agenda is to get get to work with some foam and tile pointing and stuff like that and get that going, I think, is one of my next jobs. Um, of course, that list is always growing, as as anyone with reptiles would find. Uh, that list of jobs is always something else on there. Um, but yeah, I think that's sort of what I'm working towards, uh, as the, as the, the, the next step to really complement those outdoor enclosures. Um, the other thing that I really like that some people do is putting different materials that you would find naturally into the enclosure as hide type things. Uh, like the amount of pits that I've seen with, you know, car, old car tires or um, bits of tin or wood sleepers, you know, whatever it is, it's that's, it just gives it that extra bush feel, but it also mm. doubles up as a natural hiding spot as well. And that's it. And I think that's a, a really good way to, to do things uh, as well, just to give it that extra, extra look and feel while still giving the animals what they need, I suppose. Definitely. Um, and one thing that I would be interested in, uh, I know uh, Scott Iper uh, does a lot of underground hide systems. Um, yeah. I would be very interested to see how those work and the, the pros and cons of doing something along those lines as well, potentially. Um, I know I've tried to kind of dig my uh, tub systems more into the ground just so that they hold a bit more heat potentially uh, give them a bit of extra insulation but I'd be interested to see how that 
underground system works, you know, with animals and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting way of um, doing a hide system. It's, there's a lot of preparation before actually making the pit yeah, uh, yeah. To, <laughs> to put in, but I feel like it'd be worth it. I mean, you commonly find stuff underground anyway, whether that be under like tree roots or anything. So it's definitely yeah, interesting. That's it. And um, the, the wonderful world that is heated hide boxes is a very interesting thing as well. Um, I saw a video uh, from, by a, a gent down here in Vic. Um, the, the channel is, for, I want to say Verana Bay it is, as in Verana Day, but with a B. Okay. Um, and he was setting up a, a, a heated hide box for his laces. Um, okay. And it was very interesting the the process behind doing something like that obviously for the stuff that we keep probably don't need it <laughs> but it's always interesting to see how other people do things and you know how people do different things as well yeah definitely and i think that's one of the most important things about where the hobby is going to go it's important to look at what other people are doing and i suppose think you know uh, where can that be applied in what you have or alternatively where can you improve things based on what you're seeing um, whether that's things to do with lighting heating enclosure designs size of enclosure you know there, there's so many different things um, but I think there's that real scope for where can we do better yeah, definitely. I do agree with that. It, it's it's how you learn too. It's, I mean, uh, for example, when you started in morphs and how you were doing the the whole rack system and stuff, uh, then you start seeing other people influencing you. So all friends and sharing their enclosures. You're like, hey, I really like that idea. Hey, look how well their animals are doing. What if I implied this to my animals and yeah. look how much better they'll do yeah and you've applied it and you've well proven it worked with that male northern you were talking about yeah yeah and i think the other thing as well um for, for me i know we've touched on this in a few other episodes that i've been fortunate to see a lot of different zoo setups as well and going there and looking at them and going that quite literally is a piece of natural habitat right there that's it that's what you want. You know what I mean? Like yeah. seeing that and going, that is, that, that is almost an in situ photo out in the bush. Like, I want that, that is in my fantastic. <laughs> I want, I want some of those in, in my house. <laughs> Cause it is that it is every bit that piece of na- nature there. Yeah. And it's like, you're looking at a photo almost. Um, it's just fantastic. You know, I think, one thing that I did want to touch on, um, I think the, before we touch on that, actually, um, this topic is one that we can talk about for hours um, and I'm sure we will revisit this at another point in time as well, potentially multiple with some times. guests. <laughs> yeah, multiple times. Um, there's always pros and cons to everything. Uh, but one thing that I did want to touch on, and again, as I know I've said this multiple times, this in particular may trigger some people. But this is the reality of rack systems for reptiles, okay? Uh, 
barring for hatchies, they were set up from rat racks. Let's be real here. If you look at the American systems, the rack systems, they were rat racks that were amended for ball pythons. Yeah. So you've gone from mass production of rats to mass production of a snake that supposedly spends most of its time underground, although depending on who you talk to, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. And then they've gone over to here in Australia where we've got people keeping semi-arboreal snakes in racks, big snakes in racks. I don't know. I, I don't see it personally. Mm. But in saying that, I also don't see how people can keep things like black-headed pythons and brettles in adult, adult animals in 120-centimetre enclosures either. I Personally, I can't see it. Um, for me, that's, that's, a, that's a no-go zone. Um, that's for me, again, for me, it's too small. I know people will play the, but they've successfully bred card. That's always the go-to for any of these debates is, oh, if they breed, they're healthy. But that's really not how we should be looking at animal husbandry. Whether it yeah, breeds right. or not is one thing, but whether it has the ability to, and there's multiple, uh, uh, I've looked into this for um, some school groups that I'm a part of, uh, a school group that I, I'm a part of. Um, there is multiple resources out there about enrichment and about the different domains of animal husbandry. And it just frightens me that the, zool the, the zoological field has got all of these resources private keeping in most in a lot of cases i will say a lot of cases not most cases turns a blind eye to everything you got to remember too it's literally in our law for the licensing uh animals have requirements that need to be legally met uh size wise <laughs> that's that is a good point too yes in the in the victorian there is a code of practice for keeping uh reptiles and for other animals as well that has got minimum sizes for everything. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that's out there, but the people that do, that don't change also just kind of like turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why that is, but I, I would also say that some of the estimates on that can be a bit overarching. Um, if I'm going to be honest, but, at least the thought process is there, if you get what I mean. Like some of those max, you know, max size enclosure things are a bit, how you going? But at least the thought is there. That's the that's mm. the thing, right? But if you go into a pet shop tomorrow and go, I want this animal, they're going to show you probably three, four different options of enclosures, different sizes. Um, they're not going to know that there's a code of practice out there. They should know. Yeah. They're not going to know. They're really not. Yeah. And they're not going to take that into consideration, nor are they going to consider what that animal is or what it's going to look like, uh, going to be like size-wise as an adult, more than likely. Again, some shops will do their proper due diligence and that sort of stuff, but others won't. That's the reality of this. Um, yeah. You know, for... I'm going to make a bold statement here and I'm going to say that I personally will be changing the way that I keep things based on this. I want to start seeing people keeping carpet pythons in Australia in enclosures that are bigger than a six 
footer, so 180 by 60 centimeters, right? So the, the, the current standard, if you will, is either of a, a V70 tub or a 120 by 60. And I will openly say that I have got carpets currently in 120 by 60s. But I have also got plans in place to drastically upgrade those into the future. Well, um, I think that's where we should be looking to go. Um, I think that the, the days of keeping a semi-arboreal species in a rack system really should start to be finishing. Again, controversial, I know. And I also have a lot of carpet python breeder friends that do rack systems and everything like that. You do you, but that's the way that I'm going to go from now on. Um, in saying that, I am still going to use rack systems for babies. But I think that's a whole nother kettle of fish purely because in most cases, that is the best way to do it. Again, that, that, that may be hypocritical. Absolutely. I've been known to be a hypocrite many times before. I will, I will <laughs> happily admit that, uh, happily admit that. But I think that, and again, as I said at the start of today, today's show, I will openly admit that the rack systems for babies is again, it's a keeper thing, not a kept thing. Absolutely. It is, but it's a system that works for the purpose. You've got to remember too, with um, hatchlings and rack systems and babies that it's all temporary. It's not a long-term mm. thing yeah. for the breeders. Uh, their thing is pump out as many babies as you can. Typically uh, not talking about all breeders, but typically let's talk about big, average breeder pump out as many babies as you can feed them up and ship them off to the new yeah. homes within you know a short three, period of time that's three that's, months that's the day. worst case scenario let's go with that let's go with that that's the worst case scenario it's the shove a rat down its throat every two days get it as big as you can and get it sent off so that it can breed at 18 months let's go with hey. that as the worst case scenario but i would say that in most cases maybe maybe that's being generous but um, in a lot of cases, you're going to have, at least for, for, for me personally, my animal market from basically from this year on will be probably first-time keepers, realistically, with the animals that I have. Um, but the way that I see it is if you can encourage people to do things the way that either you do them or the way that you see best then all it kind of offsets the starting point, if that makes sense. So your starting point is going to be the rack system for the juvenile animal. But if you can go to that person and say, all right, I want you to get a, a 90 tall by 60 by 60 at least. And I want you to put that in that for the next 18 months to two and a bit years. Now, what I want you to do after that point is upgrade to something much bigger. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And if you can keep, I, I personally, I'm going to say this openly. I love getting updates from people that have bought stuff from me. Um, if you can keep in contact with people that you've bought stuff off and go, how's it going? What's the, you know, what's the size? What are you, what are you doing nowadays? That sort of stuff and keep tabs on it all. I think that is the best way forward to, you know, get this notion of improved husbandry out there. Um, but I think, one of the other starting points for this whole debate 
is that people need to do research. Yeah. It's, it's scary how much of a foreign concept it is in a lot of places nowadays, but research is so important. Um, I don't know why it's become a foreign concept. I suppose it's like common sense in that, that sense. Um, but I know for me personally, if I'm considering a new species, whatever it is, I'm going to ask three or four different people at least to get their opinions on how to keep them. If I'm looking at breeding them, how to breed them, um, look at as many different resources as I can. I'm going to get books. I'm going to get website links. I'm going to get YouTube videos, Facebook groups. I'm going to start joining and reading through, you know, different people's posts. Not going to post anything myself. No, 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 no. Wait, (laughs) read what's there already. If they have files, fantastic. People have put their time into making them. Read them, please. Look at the resources that are out there. There is so many resources out there about animal husbandry. Read them. If you look at zookeeping, even even one thing that I have absolutely loved recently is looking at zookeeper resources because they are fantastic. That is industry standard keeping. That's what it. more could you want? Really? What more could you want? It's a literal manual written by the industry going, this is the way that we keep them. This is the way that we recommend. Fantastic. You'll find most species will probably have one of those as well. Read them, (laughs) please. (laughs) That may sound like an attack on people. Please don't take it that way. But do your due diligence. Due diligence. Jeez, that was slightly dyslexic anyway do your reading that's the one um because if you can come to the table informed about that species about if you're interested in the morphs of that type if you're interested in the localities of that type whatever it is if you can come to the table with a knowledge base then you can talk to the person that has the animal and you have a mutual understanding of what's going on yeah even to come back to the um, posting on Facebook once you join these groups and you're still in that research mode, uh, the reason we're advising not to post in those groups uh, is because no one wants to answer the same question, you know, a hundred times a day. As, as harsh as that may sound, yes, chances are Facebook has this fantastic, fantastic little system in place where you can search keywords in groups. Yes. If you have a question about a particular phrase... Search it up. It's as well as the fact you're going to get a hundred different answers as well because everyone does things differently. Exactly, exactly. That's the the one thing that I've found. Whenever I go out and ask people different things, what I tend to look for is the commonality across them. That's it. As an example, I have uh, tried to breed my South Australian Western Blue Tongues this year um, and fingers crossed we should have babies at some point. Um, I asked probably five or six different keepers and breeders. What do you suggest? The main commonality was that I was doing things too early. All right, perfect. That's what I went with. So I waited a couple of weeks, a couple of months, whacked them together, bang, straight into it. Perfect. That's, that's the thing. Others had different things about changing temperatures or, you know, doing this, that, and the other thing, which are great, you know, great suggestions, but the commonality is the sweet spot. Because the commonality is going to be what everyone does. And if people 
a lot of people do it and have success, then it's obviously it's working, whatever it is. Yeah, but, that, that is a very good point. Yeah, I think that people are very quick to jump onto Facebook and go, what is X animal? How do I care for? Ba, 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 ba. That shop uh, person told me ba, 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 ba. <laughs> that was going to be my next point. Um, if you, I was going to say, if you're going to go down the pet shop route, which is completely fair enough, you know, there are definitely some benefits to the pet shop route in the sense that they will oversell you everything, which may sound like a bad thing, but you will get, in theory, everything that you will need. <laughs> Again, depending on the place, but uh, you may even get things that you won't need and you will figure that out with time. But I think if you're going to go down the pet shop route in particular or something that looks a little dodgy, do the reading first because then you will, your little alarm clock in your big noggin will go bullshit, bullshit, correct, fantastic. There you go. At least that way you'll know. You'll be like, yep, yep, mm, no. Yep, 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 no. And at least that way you, you've got that base, at least a base to, to grow on from that point on about your knowledge and your husbandry. Yeah. Because the, the one thing that seems to be a reoccurring theme across the interwebs as well is people taking one person's word as gospel. That is probably one of the worst things that you can do. Regardless of who the person is, it might be Joe Blow down the road who's got two snakes or it could be the, one of the biggest breeders in the country. Whatever it is, get advice from multiple sources. Again, I can't stress this enough. Do your reading. Essentially, do your homework. I know a lot of people don't like doing their homework, but in this instance, this animal is going to depend on you for their life. Please at least know what you're doing in some this way, animal, shape, or form. If it doesn't thrive, uh, honestly, you only have yourself to blame. Mm. You could have basically prevented whatever suffering it's going to endure. Yeah. yeah. That's and the harsh reality of it. The, the other thing as well, uh, we're not sitting here high and mighty. Jeez, the amount of times I've fucked up over the last couple of years, goodness me. Um, I know Dana and myself are the same situation in that instance. We've all yeah. made mistakes. Shit happens. It is what it Sometimes is. Sometimes we make the same mistake multiple times. But you know it's, what? Exactly. You learn the hard way. <laughs> exactly. That's it. But at least if when mistakes happen, at least if you have some groundwork, you can kind of figure out what's going on. Like the amount of, t I've gone to the vets a few times for different things. And I think one thing that the vets always appreciate is if you know what's going on with the animal and you have a rough idea of what may be wrong, obviously you're not going to be qualified to go, Oh, it's this, but you can kind of go, Oh, uh, I don't know if you're suspecting a respiratory infection, you can go, Oh, it's sneezing a lot, not as active. Something's wrong, obviously. Uh, but otherwise, you can go to the vet and go, temps are fine, it's eating, blah, 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 blah. Oh, but this happened that may have caused something to go wrong. Okay, the vet has a basis. Fantastic. Um, another thing that's going to be very important is uh, the, the whole world of record keeping. But I think we'll keep that for another day. Yeah. Um, this has almost become a beginner's guide episode <laughs> more yeah, so than anything, hasn't it? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> we, uh, 
we may have to come back to the, the racks and tubs and enclosures debate and do it properly because this has basically just become a beginner's guide <laughs> more than anything. Oh, yeah. But hey, that's okay. That's, uh, that's just as helpful a resource, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I want to go back to one point that I labored a lot in that tirade of a monologue that just happened. Um, I think if you can find industry standard, not reptile industry, zookeeper industry standards for the animals that you keep, that's going to put you in a perfect, almost perfect stead. Because what's yeah. accepted by the zoological field is very different to what's accepted by the reptile keeping, you know, private keeper world. Because zoos are held to a completely different set of standards compared to mm -hmm. what you and I are at home. I think that's, that's the main takeaway from this. And do your reading. Uh, I know I said that about seven times already, but hopefully that's gotten, gotten through to people's minds. Um, I will rate anyone who's going to go down into the comments and just say, do your reading. Um, uh, just putting that out there. If you do that, well done you. Um, <laughs> just, just for the memes purely, uh, just because you can. But uh, otherwise, I think that will just about do us for today. I think I'm going to have to uh, re reword the, the title of this one and go for a beginner's guide, kind of, sort of. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. But uh, we'll see how we go. Um, hopefully, you've all enjoyed. Uh, obviously, this will be coming out in a, in a few weeks' time. Um, so feel free to send us a message. Um, hopefully, you enjoyed the last couple of episodes. Uh, we went for something a little bit different with the last two, talking about uh, particular zoos. If you want to see more of that, let us know. Um, or if you want to do more debate things, whatever it is, we're always open to feedback. Uh, probably best to send it to me because I tend to be the phonaholic. Um, <laughs> although I am trying to fix that. That's a story for another day. Uh, but anyway, um, Dane, where can the lovely people that listen, find you and your animal adventures? Uh, you can find me over at blue horizon reptiles on Facebook and Instagram. Fantastic. And if you want to see anything of the shenanigans that I get up to, uh, Josh's Aussie reptiles, on pretty much all platforms. Uh, I have been working on updating my website as well, although that's a little bit hit and miss. You're probably better off just sending me a message if you're interested in anything. Anyway, uh, hopefully you enjoyed. Have a great uh, afternoon, night, morning, whatever it is. Uh, enjoy, uh, and hopefully you're all keeping safe in the, the weird world that we live in at the moment. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.